Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discussing the seventh word. We are now in the back half of the 10 words, the last five, and here they'll be discussing the command to not commit adultery. Throughout this episode, they'll also deal with other issues of sexuality and homosexuality in the world and the church. We hope that you enjoy and are edified by this discussion. And here are Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discussing the seventh word. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart. I'm here today with Alistair Roberts. Uh, Brian Motes, as usual, is helping to keep us uh, technically solvent. And uh, John Crawford is sitting uh, semi-quietly in the corner, eavesdropping on our conversation today. Today we're continuing our series in the 10 words. We've been mainly working from Exodus 20, the original delivery of the 10 words from Mount Sinai. Of course, the 10 words are also delivered by Moses on the plains of Moab as Israel is ready to go into the land. It's recorded in Deuteronomy 5, and there are slightly different, slight differences between the two forms of the 10 words. I'll say again what I've been saying every time, that the, we're calling these the 10 words rather than the 10 commandments, because that's the biblical terminology for this text. And uh, it's important for reminding us that the 10 words include not only commandments, imperatives, but also promises and threats, declarations of the Lord's character as the God of the Exodus, his character as the God of creation. Uh, All of that is part of the Ten Words and not simply a series of commandments. Uh, But we are in the section of the Ten Words, the second half of the Decalogue, the last five commandments, where we have a series of very pithy, brief commandments that are negative imperatives. The sixth word we talked about in the last episode is, in the Hebrew, simply two words, not murder or not kill. The same is true of the seventh word, translated in English as thou thou shalt not commit adultery, but in the Hebrew it's just the negative with the verb to commit adultery, not commit adultery. We can't really do that in English, but it's just two words in the Hebrew, not steal in the eighth word. So we're in the section of the ten words where it's accurate to describe these as a series of commandments because these are all very directly imperatives. Uh, We've also talked about the structure of the ten words and noted that the first five commandments or the first five words include some kind of rationale, uh, something to buttress or reinforce the the imperatives, an explanation, a threat, a promise, uh, something about the Lord's character that's uh, part part of the rationale for for the commandment. Uh, But that's not the case with the last five of the ten words. There's no explanation. The, The Lord's name is not used. Uh, and uh, we have to draw on other parts of Scripture to think through the theology of each of these commandments. I suggested in the last episode that the last five words, beginning with thou shalt not kill, are under the heading of love of neighbor. That's a very traditional way of reading the ten words. And specifically, uh, I think, uh, under the heading of assaults on the image of God. That's the uh, way that uh, murder is described in Genesis 9. A murder has to be punished because... Uh, the image of God, uh, because man is created in the image of God, and murder is an assault on the image of God. And I think that's a helpful rubric, a helpful heuristic to think through the rest of these imperatives. Uh, So each of these are uh, assaults on the image of God in one way or another. 
And that's true, I believe, of the seventh word, which is thou shalt not commit adultery. And one of the things that um, is uh, evident in the ten words from the beginning is the fact that the Lord God as the Creator is intrusive. He doesn't observe our personal space. He uh, demands that we worship Him and Him alone. He demands that we keep time according to His pattern of timekeeping. Uh, the tenth word is a word about our desires and prohibits certain kinds of desires. Uh, God is an intrusive God who's speaking into our personal space and exerting His authority into areas of a life that we think are our own property. Uh, and that's the case, you know, I think, maybe above all with the seventh word, at least for contemporaries. We think of freedom as kind of defined in terms of sexual freedom. To be free is to be able to uh, do what we like sexually. And we have this protected zone, uh, not only to engage in whatever pleasurable sexual activity we might want to pursue, but also to experiment with different forms of gender or sexuality. Uh, that's all a zone of absolute freedom and plasticity, as it said. Uh, but God is declaring, He's intervening into that space, and He's exerting His authority, telling us what we can and cannot do as sexual beings. There also seems to be a connection between the way that we relate to God and the way that we relate to one another in our sexual relations. From the very outset, we've seen some of the literary parallels and patterns within the ten words themselves. And one thing we do notice is in the second word, an emphasis upon God as a jealous God that presents our relationship with God in terms similar to that of a marital relationship. He is the husband of Israel. And as the husband of Israel, he is jealous for Israel's loyalty, its faith, its devotion, and any other God that is placed before him or the worship of idols and those who have no true life in themselves, that that is an assault to his dignity as the true um, husband of Israel. And reading those two things alongside each other, I think, helps to open them. Each is opened up by the other. When we get to places like Romans 1, the relationship between humanity and God is seen as um, a posture that has bearing upon our relationship with one another as male and female. And when one breaks down, the other will tend to break down too. Yeah. And you can extend that and see um, you're comparing the second and the seventh word. There's a, a conceptual link. Um, jealousy is a marital term and that matches the seventh word. But you can, you can run through the two sets of five commandments and you can see links at each point, the fifth, the first and the sixth, the third and the eighth, they, there, there are these conceptual linkages between the, the first five and the second five words. So also, it's, it's interesting that the adultery is uh, used most often in the Old Testament. That, term, that terminology of adultery is used most often in the prophets. People committed uh, adultery in various forms in, uh, in the book of Genesis. I don't think the word adultery or committed adultery ever appears in Genesis. It's concentrated in the prophets, and it's usually not talking about sexual infidelity. It's talking about Israel's infidelity to Yahweh. And so the kind of typological or theological root of marriage is brought, out, uh, brought to the fore. And um, the connection that you're making that uh, uh, infidelity to, to the Lord is a kind of spiritual adultery. That's something that the, that the uh, Old Testament emphasizes. There are also, as we've 
already seen, connections with other commandments in terms of themes of honoring marriage. Honor your father and mother. There's the union of male and female, mother and father within that commandment, the jealousy themes in the second commandment, and then later on, the not coveting your neighbor's wife in the tenth. This emphasis upon honoring marriage is then not just one particular commandment, but it's a broader theme within the commandments more generally. Right. And as you pointed out when we talked about the fifth word, that that's not just, you can think about that in terms of personal relation. You're supposed to give honor to your own father and your own mother, but you're also giving honor to the institution uh, that uh, is represented, uh, the institution of marriage that's represented by father and mother, the institution of the family that's represented by father and mother. And the same thing is true here in the seventh. You're, there's, a, there's a demand to respect that, that social institution, that social religious institution. And it goes beyond simply the, it is the personal demand that you remain faithful to your spouse, but it goes beyond that. And of course, if, when, we, when we look at the, the rest of the law, this um, particular word that is speaking about sexual activity, a certain form of sexual infidelity, uh, is broadened out to include other forms of sexual infidelity. So it's clear that God isn't uh, giving us a, a, a free zone with one exception. There's lots of, lots of forms of sexual activity that the Lord prohibits. There are degrees of consanguinity in the incest laws in Leviticus. There are prohibitions of uh, same-sex relations in Leviticus. And Paul extends that to not just to male-male uh, homosexual relations, but to lesbian relations in Romans 1 and, and treats those as being against the created order and unnatural desires, uh, reflecting unnatural desires. There's, there's a range of different kinds of responses, depending on what kind of uh, social responses and, and, and uh, sanctions, depending on what kind of illicit sexual activity we're talking about. Certain forms of illicit sexual activity can merit the death penalty. Other forms require some kind of compensation. But when it, when it comes down to it, the traditional view that um, sex is reserved for, sexual intercourse is reserved for the marriage bond is the biblical view. And all these other forms of sexual activity are prohibited. So again, the, God is not only intrusive, but in a sense, by our modern standards, by contemporary standards, very restrictive in the, in the zone where sexual activity is properly, where it's proper. Maybe something that can be read in Hebrews 13, that um, the honorable character of the marriage bed and of marriage more generally, and the way that God judges everything outside of that, um, hmm. or anything opposed to that. And as we see this command, I think, unpacked to a degree in Deuteronomy 22 following, mm -hmm. there are certain things that come to the foreground there, such as extramarital relations. Mm -hmm. There is also some symbolic, there are also some symbolic commandments about um, plowing with an ox and a donkey together. Mm -hmm. And this um, reference to being unequally yoked with unbelievers there, I think, is part of what's in view. Without, um, within the whole of scripture, I think, there's this concern that the people of God not um, marry with idolaters, with those who will reject the Lord. Um, but yet, marriage is to be a context of faithfulness to each other, but also a context in which faithfulness to the Lord is practiced and also inculcated in the next generation, mm -hmm. that God chose Abraham in order that he might teach his children. Yeah, I've been talking mainly about Old Testament uh, passages that uh, talk about restrictions on sexual 
activity. Some people might have the idea that Jesus softens things up a bit. Jesus is gentle and nice, and he, he uh, uh, doesn't address these kinds of questions. You hear that a lot. And generally, people think that Jesus is not as stringent as the law, but uh, the Sermon on the Mount is its pretty clear that it, the opposite is the case. If there was any loophole, you know, that you could indulge sexual, uh, illicit sexual desires, Jesus closes that loophole. So if you thought, you know, I'm not committing adultery, I'm not fornicating, I'm not engaged in same-sex activity, I'm just watching pornography at home in my bedroom, that's okay, because this is a victimless crime. Jesus makes it clear that, that that's a form of adultery uh, in itself. Uh, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. So whatever loopholes we might think exist by avoiding public expressions of illicit sexual activity, Jesus is, and I don't think the Old Testament endorses that, but I think the 10th word is clear about uh, sexual desire. But um, Jesus closes any potential loophole that might, people might think are there. So again, this, the sexual demands of Scripture are very stringent, especially, especially given the power of sexual desire and the kind of formlessness of human sexual desire. Uh, and then the Lord comes and says, no, you've got one, one place where you can express this very deep part of your person, this very strong imp impulse that you have, only one place where it's legitimate. And beyond that, I think Christ brings people's attention back to the original creation mm -hmm. and then also to the consummation that there, is, um, there are these two clear reference points that we're often tempted to think about the messiness and the muddiness of human existence and the compromises that must be made. Um, but for instance, the permission that Moses gave concerning divorce is not allowed to become the datum by which we determine things. Mm -hmm. Rather, that's an, that's an accommodation or compromise to a situation where you have an unfaithful, hard-hearted people. Mm -hmm. Rather, our reference point should be that God created the male and female and that the two shall become one flesh. And any violation of that is a violation of God's original intent. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's the starting point for uh, John Paul II's Theology of the Body. A uh, large part of that is reflection on the implications of gen the early chapters of Genesis for Christian understanding of sexuality in the body. But his starting point is that statement of Jesus, in the beginning it was not so. So there is a standard outside of the post-fall uh, mess of human sexuality. There's a standard by which that's all measured, and that's the standard that, we, that we're held to. Um, Jesus takes us back to that original creation. We've already touched on this, but it brings up another, or I think what, kind of the central dimension. I mean, you, can think about, you can think about adultery, the prohibition of adultery is kind of a social management. You, know, you, you need to know who your parents are. You need to have clean lines of descent for the purposes of inheritance, or you need to have, uh, just for the sake of some kind of social order, you need to, you need to keep, uh, you need to have some kind of uh, sexual, uh, I guess some kind of sexual order. That's in view in Scripture, but the, the Bible really places uh, sexuality and violations of sexuality in a, in a theological context. And the, the Genesis 2, the Genesis 1 and 2 setting that Jesus is referring to is the center, the beginning of that. We, as I said, we touched on this when he talked about the, uh, the way that uh, the commandment against adultery is linking up with the second word. So uh, infidelity to the Lord is a kind of spiritual adultery. And physical adultery, sexual adultery, is a kind of assault on, that too has a kind of theological dimension, insofar as the marriage relationship is an image of 
the relationship of God and His church, of Christ and His church, of Yahweh and Israel. Uh, any violation of that bond reflects on that. It's a lie, as it were, about God's relationship to His people. Uh, it's, a, it's an assault on the image of God as it exists in the marriage bond. I've referred to Bart a number of times in this series uh, uh, section of the Church Dogmatics where he's dealing with some of the ten words, not all of them, but he, he uh, has a really interesting digression on the uh, Genesis 2 and basically reads Genesis 2 as kind of an allegory. The creation of Eve is a kind of allegory of redemption. It's not good that man should be alone. And he says, well, the Lord, although existing in perfect bliss from all eternity, determines that he's not going to be alone. And so he makes a creation that will produce a bride that will enjoy fellowship with him. He's a kind of incarnational, a kind of anticipation of incarnation. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. He sees in that kind of a glimpse of the son leaving his father in order to uh, rescue and bond with and commune with his bride. So uh, even uh, he's reading Genesis 2 in the light of Ephesians 5 and other New Testament passages. But um, I think that's the right way to read it, that uh, Genesis 2 is not just about the creation of another kind of human being. It's about the creation of this bond that is the human reflection of the bond that God has with his people. Going back to the parallels that we've already commented upon between the second and the seventh commandments, um, we can see in the relationship between man and woman a human act of image forming. Um, we see that, I think, in Genesis 5, where God created man in his image and likeness, and then Adam knows his wife and begets a son in his image, Seth. There is a parallel between God's formation of humanity as his image and then also human beings in their relationship as male and female and the formation of images. And when we engage in marriage relationships or sexual relations with infidelity, there is a breaking down of that proper image forming process mm -hmm. and the relationship that we should have with each other that honors God's image in ourselves and also the creative capacities that God has given to us. We often um, see that within humanity's creative powers are the greatest potential for danger and destruction, um, whether that's technological, whether that's sexual, the sort of damage that can be done to people through a misuse of these powers, powers um, is immense. But yet, God wants to channel these for the sake of his good and our good. And whether that's our technological abilities or our sexual abilities, those are creative powers of great potential that need to be used in a way that brings honor to him. And also that will truly be an exercise of power. There's a futility to unfaithfulness. It does not yield fruit in the same way as marital faithfulness can form a house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so again, the, that, that's an, another dimension of what we said at the outset, that uh, the seventh word is coming out of the rubric that we set up for the second half of the, second half of the Decalogue, that uh, this is about, the, about imaging God and assaults on the image of God. Um, and yeah, it's an yeah, assault on the image-making or image-forming process of uh, human sexuality. One of, one of the striking things, too, in the light of contemporary uh, conceptions of sexuality, one of the striking things, one of the offensive things about the Bible is that there's public sanctions uh, against sexual infidelity. Things that are done in the privacy of one's own room are, are condemned, 
but there are also sanctions provided. And we should we should uh, make the qualification, obviously, that the rules of evidence apply to sexual crimes in the Old Testament as much as to any other crime. So if two men had intercourse and they were truly doing it privately, there would be no witness and there would be no way to prosecute a crime. But uh, given that qualification, there is the potential at least for sodomy, uh, for homosexuals uh, to be punished by death in under the law. Adultery is punished by death under the law. Uh, certain forms of incest are punished by death. And then there are other um, sanctions that are lesser sanctions for other forms of sexual infidelity. Uh, again, that's, that's offensive, again, offensive to contemporary sensibilities. Not only is God telling us what to do with our sexuality, but he's, he's giving uh, so, um, social and legal uh, authority to enforce a certain, a certain sexual norm. Uh, and I mean, that was, that's, that was the situation in uh, the Christian world up until very recently. I mean, it's, it's only been, I mean, getting to my advanced age now, it's, uh, <laughs> the time is foreshortening. But it's, you know, the early 90s was when the, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned uh, anti-sodomy laws in, you know, in most states. So it's uh, 30 years ago, up until that time, uh, rarely enforced, but there were laws on the books that uh, prohibited, that made sodomy, un- it was illegal, it was not just frowned on socially. Uh, and we just, um, the law has just kind of uh, washed its hands of sexual uh, activity certain, certain restri- with certain restricted cases where the law still, the law still exerci- exerts its force. You can't have sex with children. Uh, consent is the big is the big uh, determinant of whether a uh, whether sexual activity between adults is legitimate or not. But of course, the biblical picture is is um, is significantly different from that. A consent is not the is not the key to understanding what makes an, uh, a legitimate uh, sexual act. And it's not just the negative sanctions. There is a positive sanctioning of sexual relations between a man and a woman in marriage, and a public celebration and recognition of that union. Um, when we have a marriage, there is the assumption that these two people will be having sexual relations with each other, which suggests that what takes place in the privacy of someone's bedroom is not just a private reality. It's something that has public implications and that there is a public, a proper public interest in that union. That is something that people, I think, have rightly noted has been broken down in many ways in our understanding of marriage. Marriage becomes a private um, emotional bond between two people that there needs to be maybe public recognition, validation, celebration of it for the um, personal psychological affirmation of the parties involved. Mm -hmm. But there's less sense of this is a union, a sexual union that exists for the sake of the common good. It must be bounded by certain protections, uh, adumbrated with certain laws and structures and institutions. And it must be celebrated as... The union is not just between two private persons in the privacy of their own home. Um, There are public things that come out of this act by which, and protecting the integrity of that is for the sake of the entire society. Right. right. Yeah, I think it's uh, important to emphasize that uh, then I think that would would have been true in ancient Israel. What we know from the text is the negative uh, sanctions, but there would have been a, there's a, there's a positive norm that's presented in scripture 
And again, that was that was the case for Christendom for centuries until you know, very recently. It was still the case that uh, that was people deviated. Obviously, people have been sexually uh, unfaithful in all kinds of ways from the beginning, but there was still this public norm that was set up. Uh, Robert Jensen has a really interesting section on uh, the seventh word in his systematic theology, uh, where he talks about the public dimensions of it, as you were describing, and also talks about the collapse of any of any public norms, uh, not just um, a collapse of uh, negative enforcements, but any collapse that a collapse of the idea that there is a normal <laughs> kind of sexuality. That's just that's just gone. Uh, it's it's prejudiced and bigoted to even talk in terms of a, a sexual norm that everyone should conform to. Uh, and his uh, uh, Jensen's comment is that societies perpetuate themselves through procreation the, uh, and uh, having some kind of norm for sexual relations and the procreation of children is uh, necessary for the survival of a, of a society. A, a society that gives up norms in that area is simply giving up norms concerning its future life. So he just sees this as a complete abandonment of any kind of social order or perpetuation of social order in the future. It's not something that's, um, however, however it's enforced, it's not something that can be just left to the whim of individuals. It, there, in order for society to survive, there has to be some kind of some kind of norm. In order for it to be healthy and godly, it has to be a, obviously a biblical norm. And there, I think we need to pay attention to just the falsehood of the supposed symmetry between sexual relations between two persons of the same sex and a man and a woman. Mm. That one is inherently sterile. And it's not fruitful. The public interest that might be taken in it is purely um, for matters of public health, that disease not be spread, perhaps. But there's no sense that this is the creative source of society itself, that society flows from this spring, mm. and that the heart of society is found in that particular union. Mm -hmm. And the more that we've started to think about same-sex marriage, other things like that, the more easily we bought into the idea that sex is sex is sex. There's, it's a matter of indifference. It's just a matter of gentle excitement. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really matter between who, which parties it occurs. Mm -hmm. um, but yet scriptural un understanding is so clearly rooted in an appreciation of humanity being created male and female. And throughout the book of Genesis, God is taming a wayward sexuality that is common to human society, but yet is a characteristic of a fallen humanity. And whether that's circumcision, I think, is a very important symbolic um, ritual for that purpose, that God is pruning the sexuality of of. Israelite men, mm -hmm. that they're formed in a sexuality that's distinct from that of places like Sodom or um, of the Shechemites. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, one of the deeply disturbing trends of uh, our contemporary world is that you not only have abandonment socially and legally of any kind of sexual norms, but even in many churches, you have an abandonment of any kind of uh, sexual or marital norm. Churches are in upheaval trying to decide whether homosexuality should be endorsed, whether homosexuals, uh, active homosexuals can serve as ministers. Seeing those kind of trends in the world is disturbing, especially a world that was once deeply formed by Christian norms. Seeing it in the church is far more disturbing because the church, the early church was uh, distinguished from 
Greco-Roman society, insignificant, uh, one significant uh, marker of that distinction was its sexual life. Again, whether Christians were sexually unfaithful too, but there was a sexual norm in the church that was uh, quite different from that of the surrounding society. And that, uh, in some churches, that, that uh, distinction is breaking down significantly. That's also the place where we can think about a program or a mission of restoration of sane and godly sexuality. It has to start with the church clinging to and holding to Scripture in spite of the cultural pressures. It has to involve the church not just, not just setting out a positive vision of sexuality. That's absolutely essential but also being willing to bite the bullet and enforce the sexual norms that the Bible presents. I mean, the one place where we have Paul speaking in uh, using the language of the death penalties of the Old Testament is in 1 Corinthians 6, and he applies it to a church, a Corinthian church, where uh, a man has his father's wife. He's committing a form of incest that would have been a capital crime in the Old Testament. And he's uh, saying that man has to be uh, disciplined by the church. He has to be given over to Satan. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy that that evil shall be purged from among you, which is death penalty language in the Old Testament. Was being implied in the church as as excommunication, as a form of discipline. So trying to change the civil laws on these kinds of things, I think, is a a fruitless effort given the drift of our society. I I think the battle really is in the church and over the church's confidence and commitment to Scripture and Scripture's norms and its willingness to enforce those. And as we've discussed at various points before, there is not just some prohibitive impulse that's driving the sexuality that you find in Paul, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 5-7. to There is a deep and rich account of God's creative and redemptive purpose for the body and for relations between a man and a woman. This is not just a matter of God wanting to um, place limits upon people, but rather these are things that affirm the goodness of the body and of God's purposes for relations between men and women within his wider ends. Mm. And for more on that point, stay tuned for Alistair's uh, forthcoming (laughs) book, Heirs Together, A Theology of the Sexes, forthcoming soon from Crossway Publishers. (laughs) Got a commercial in there. All right. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.